When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. You're you. As always, we are joined by our world-famous super producer, Noel, nicknamed to be announced, Brown, and Dylan, nickname also TBA, Fagan. Yeah. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. I, I we'll think we it. will. I hope I hope we will. It's one of those situations where, you know, like we said, it's 50-50. It really is. Yeah. What a time to be alive. Yeah, I think I, I think we've been doing pretty good with them, though, recently. We've uh, we've had some, some reasonable ones. We've had some that, mm-hmm. you know, seem to make sense along mm-hmm. with the episode. Yeah, we have. We've been doing all right with nicknames, and we've been doing... Uh, Doing okay with listener mail, too. I don't want to jinx this. Oh, yeah. Well, the, today's episode, as a matter of fact, is a listener suggestion, mm-hmm. and it's a good one. And uh, I'll have to um, add a little disclaimer here at the end. Uh, you'll understand when we get to it here. But uh, this comes from a listener. His name is uh, Tomas C. We'll just leave it at that, C. Mm-hmm. Uh, dear, Scott, or dear, dear Ben and Scott. Oh, boy, I almost uh, took top credit there. I just meant... I almost said Scott and Ben, but it says Ben and Scott on the email. Oh, man. Tomas is going to be steamed at you. <laughs> All right. Dear Ben and Scott, I am sure you do not have too many Hungarian listeners, but I am definitely one of them. Oh, cool. Yeah. I guess we do have one listener in Hungary, maybe. All right. <laughs> we probably have more. Maybe. Uh, let's well, not. I hope. Let's not be too maybe. Uh, too smug. Well, maybe Tomas has some friends. Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. your friends about the show. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, I'm a, I'm a sales guy, and I spend half of my life behind the wheel. And as a true petrol head, I really like uh, to listen to podcasts about cars. If it's in English, that's even better because I can improve my English language skills. So oh. this is not his first language, English. Oh, that's super cool, man. Yeah, really cool. So he, he writes in, and he has a, a bunch of things that he likes about what we're doing, which is really nice. Uh, but he also has some suggestions for shows, and one of those suggestions was the story of Borgward. B-O-R-G-W-A-R-D. Borgward. Mm-hmm. And it is a, uh, it turns out that's a German uh, automobile brand that <laughs> I had personally never heard of. 
I mean, I, I think we probably have run across them maybe in a museum somewhere, but yeah. uh, it's just kind of one of those things we maybe have walked past and didn't really think much of, or it was branded a different, uh, a different, well, with a different name. Yeah, we definitely never dug into it the way that we would dig into, say, the origin of Dodge or Honda or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And he goes on to say, I hope that you can use some of my proposals, and I look forward to listening to a lot of car stuff in the future. So, um well, cheers, Thomas. And, yeah, uh, you know, I have, you to, so much. I have to point this out, though. This mm. is a, an important note. If For those of you that know the Borgward brand, I guess, this is not <laughs> the Thomas C that has recently been named to the executive, as the executive director of the global marketing brand. Uh, it's not him. And I checked because <laughs> as soon as I got to that, I was, re- I was reading the, uh, the history of the, uh, of the, the brand itself, you know, on their yeah. website. And I was looking at the news and, and, one of the items was this, and this name stuck out to me, and it's so close to his last name as well. It's Tomas C. Yeah. And I thought, oh no, this is the guy, you know, we've already prepared this episode, and this is like a, a marketing ploy. You know, the guy, the guy from the marketing group has said, I'd like you to talk about my brand, but that's not the case. This is just a fan from Hungary who, uh, who wants to hear about the Borgward brand, and, uh, we're happy to do that today. Uh, one quick thing that I want to maybe start yeah. with here. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a couple of things. And I've already violated this. Um, I've got a note here that says slow down. And I'm going to I'm going to look at this continually throughout the podcast because I realized in that last episode that we did it was a two-part episode right. on Harry Miller, mm-hmm. Legends Harry Miller. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized that I was trying to pack like 4 hours of information into 2 hours of podcasting. Well, to be fair, we had a lot of stuff to do in that in those uh two episodes. Yeah, we did. But uh but I realized just how quickly I was speaking and uh, sometimes things didn't come out right. I was just too fast. I've been doing that for the last couple months, I guess. So I'm going to try to make an effort to slow down a little bit. And uh, already you can probably hear that I'm, I'm I'm excited about today's topic, so it's hard to, to back it down. But I'm going to try. And I'll look at that note occasionally. Maybe even touch it. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> All right. Slow down. I'll give it a shot. But uh, here's one way to slow the program down. I've got one thing I want to mention. It's something I saw the other day on the road. If you got a moment before we begin our you know, podcast for the day. For some stuff Scott sees? A little bit, yeah. All right, so I'm commuting the other morning on the, uh, what is it, I guess it would be I-75, 85 as it comes through Atlanta going south. Oh, okay. A lot of people are familiar with that road. It's the like the main artery right through downtown Atlanta. It's the main clogged artery yeah. of downtown Atlanta. If you're going to Florida, you're going to drive through that area, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's, that's the thing. In this particular area, there's about eight or nine lanes of traffic. It's where a bunch of lanes are coming in, and eventually that you know narrows down just a bit. But it's about eight or nine lanes there. So about three or four lanes over to my left, um, I look over, and there's a lot of traffic kind of slowing down when everybody else is still kind of freely moving. Mm-hmm. I wondered what's going on. There's got to be you know a car wreck or something. It happens all the time. Something in the road, maybe. Yeah, it was something in the road. It was a, but the debris looked so weird to me. It was like it was scattered along the entire lane. And the weird thing was, it was only in that one lane. It was like evenly distributed throughout one lane. And I looked really carefully as I drove by because we weren't going that fast at all. It was a what looked like a a, a huge drawer full of chisels and screwdrivers that had dumped out on the road. It looked like somebody had maybe been hauling one of those great big toolboxes on yeah. a trailer. Oh wow. And a drawer had opened or fallen out, but there was no drawer, just the just the tools. And there's this assortment of, of all types of of again, screwdrivers and, and I think there were big chisels in there. They looked like they had real broad tips on them. I can't imagine the damage that that would cause your vehicle if you were to hit that because it would you know of course it would puncture tires. Right, but not just tires. It would also hit the 
undercarriage in a pretty brutal way. And also fly up into other vehicles, you know, oncoming tra- or, oh, yeah. you know, traffic behind you, I guess. Yeah. That's like a super hazard on the road. I just haven't ever seen anything quite like that. I've seen, you know, other weird stuff on the highway, of course, you know, like people, you know, a couch drops off or a mattress or something like that or lawn chairs or whatever. But uh, but I've never seen like a, a, a whole drawer full of tools on the road like that. What did you do? Well, I just drove on by. I didn't really, uh, you know, other than just looking at, you know, the mess, I guess. Um, you know, there was no temptation to stop and get them because you can't do that. There's too much traffic. And you don't want to get locked up, go up the river for screwdriver theft? Yeah, well, I mean, it looked like, I mean, this looked like $1,000 worth of equipment, of tools there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. It probably just fell off a truck. Well, yeah, I think so. I think it probably dropped out of someone's toolbox again on a trailer or something. Um, there's no turn in that area, though, so it couldn't have just dropped out that way. It's really a, kind of a mystery. Like, how did that end up there like that? Well, if they're precariously packed, what time of day did you say this was? in the morning. Mm-hmm. Morning rush yeah, hour? morning rush. At the end so of the morning rush. someone's heading, there's probably a, a construction vehicle heading to a site, and maybe they packed in a hurry, but if that box was precariously packed, then you don't have to be going that fast. Just the act of slowing down abruptly and then speeding up again yeah. in stop-and-go traffic could do it. Just slide it right off the back end at some point. Yeah, but the weird thing is there's no box. Well, anyways, there's no box or no tool chest or anything like that. Just I, I would imagine that whoever you know the owner was was surprised to find an, uh, you know that all of his tools are gone when he gets to the job site, he or she, I guess. Well, maybe, and I know this is a little bit of inside baseball for people who have never visited Atlanta, Georgia, but maybe this feeds into... Uh, a theory that I used to have. I totally didn't take seriously, but you have to think about sometimes. Atlanta is one of the cities that is very, very fond of more or less arbitrarily putting down metal plates. Oh, yeah. And these can be very dangerous because they can shift when a heavy vehicle goes over them, right? Like a tractor trailer. Uh, and then they'll have an abrupt drop in the asphalt. And... I don't know what comes first. I don't know if they're supposed to cover up the potholes or if they dig the holes to, like, set the plates. Uh, but this is a continual problem downtown. And I it got to the point where some buddies and I were driving, and um, he had uh, messed up his oil pan on his car because he knocked one of these oh, the wrong way. And so, yeah, he was livid. He was, he was not a happy camper. And then we came to the conclusion that, because we see so little actual road construction on surface streets in Atlanta, that maybe there's a different crew, we call them like the night crew, who go out and make the potholes and lay the plates just to keep <laughs> stuff interesting and like throw things in the road. Because, you know, mattress, well, like you see all sorts of stuff on the road in this town. And I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, maybe your town uh, is just as bad, but I've seen the following. I've seen mattresses. Every imaginable tire, uh, emblems. One time I saw a box of hats and the wind picked up some of the hats. Uh, I've seen, um, you know, of course, the saddest, the stray animals yeah. of every ilk. Yeah. Actually, a number of years ago, uh, you can check this uh, fact, folks. A number of years ago, a zebra got loose in Atlanta. Yeah, that was right near our office. Yeah, that when was. We wasn't were in it? The, uh, the Buckhead area and the circus was visit- visiting town. And, uh, and, and what a zebra escaped the train or the uh, the procession, I guess. Maybe? Yeah, he is, he was just done with it. <laughs> or maybe maybe the night crew of Atlanta Road Maintenance took him out there just to spice things up. Hey, you know this is a good way to plug our old show on circus trains. 
Oh, yeah, we do have a show on Circus Straits. Yeah. It's a golden oldie, man. Yeah, sure. You can check out that show as well as all of the other audio podcasts we've ever done. And, oh, brother, there are a lot of them by going to our website, carstuffshow.com. Also, Scott, speaking of fantastic segues. Boy, that was a long one, huh? Yeah, Borgward. Borgward. Yeah, Borgward. All right, so <laughs> we're going right. to talk about Borgward today for Thomas, right? Or Thomas. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, I got to tell you, like he he wrote in and said, you know, it's got an interesting past. It's a it's a it's a neat story. And I looked at it and I didn't really quite get it at first, but I, I got it later. I, I understand there's a lot of twist to this story. Yeah. In fact, this a lot of the articles that you'll read will start out with a mention of a guy that we've talked about in the past, Preston Tucker. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll say it's a little bit Preston Tucker like, I guess, in the way that things kind of played out. But um, yeah, there's there's more than one twist to this story. Really, there's a lot of of uh, of uh, meandering going on in the history of this company so um i guess maybe we should talk about why they hey you know let's it's not going to give anything away if we just read this quick little summary from from the car and driver article i don't think oh no i think that's great so there's a fantastic uh article about borgward from car and driver and it starts with the following the story of preston tucker and his car is well known and i'm paraphrasing here the gist of it is that uh, the 48 was better looking and technologically superior to the competition, but was brought down by uh, mean-spirited competitors, government officials. And the author here, by the way, is too polite to say corrupt, but I believe they were corrupt. Well, and they say, of course, you know, the, the, the Tucker car was uh, – and the Tucker brand, I guess, Preston Tucker, yeah. was very forward-thinking. He had, yeah. you know, a stylish vehicle that was real cutting-edge, mm-hmm. um, you know, had a lot of technology that, you know, the other manufacturers just weren't able to catch up with at the time without spending a pile of money. And some that uh, no manufacturer had thought to try, like that um, that third headlight. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things like that. I mean, uh, the rear-mounted engine. Remember the helicopter engine in the in the trunk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so strange things like that, right? But And, and this isn't quite that wacky. But they're saying that Germany has its equivalent to Preston Tucker. Actually, yes, someone who in some ways is even more Tucker than Tucker in terms of scale. Because while uh, while Preston Tucker and the Tucker Car Company may, or Tucker Motor Company made uh, about 51 units before they folded, yeah. Borgward was the fourth largest car company in Germany. Yeah, by the end. By the end, at their like heyday, and we're not giving anything away by saying that by the end. No, no, no. Uh, and they employed more than twenty thousand people. They were sold under multiple brands, not just Borgward, but also Lloyd, Hansa, and Goliath. Yeah. So this is uh, this is started by this charismatic industrialist. His name is Carl Borgward. And uh, again, these cars were really stylish. They had lots of, of cutting edge technology, and a lot of people have said that the uh, the Isabella line, which yeah. is a line that came about. Um, I want to say the Isabella was around 1954, and they that was sold until the end of this company again in 1961, which, again, we're not giving anything away. There's a lot of twists. But um, <laughs> the Isabella was considered by a lot of a lot of people to be one of the most beautiful cars of its era. Um, so th- there were other things, too. The Borgward 2400, they say it was a, an early fastback sedan, um, had an, an in-house built automatic transmission. Uh, there was a successor to that car, the P100, the Borgward P100, which was one of the fastest cars in its segment, and it, and it was fitted with an air suspension, including an innovative anti-roll and anti-drive, anti-dive system. Not anti-drive. You wouldn't want that in your car. <laughs> an anti-dive system. So, you know, when you, you hit the brakes, it didn't, uh, it didn't nose down. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, let's if it's okay, Scott, let's introduce everybody to the guy responsible um, in a little more detail 
as we get into what he did. Certainly. Because one thing that he did that is very, in, that I, I think is, is very important here is he was not born on third base. This was not a guy with a, uh, what do you call it, silver spoon in his mouth. Born on third base. I've never heard that one. Uh, started on third base. I like that. I think I can't remember. It's a good saying. Well, you and I, I, I get, I get what you mean. Im- yeah, yeah, immediately. but le- like, let's be honest. That's because we both are not the best at idioms. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. But, but I understand. Born on third base. That's a good one. Uh, so, what we mean is that he came from very modest means. It was the son of a coal uh, retailer, a coalman, mm-hmm. you can call them, uh, named Wilhelm Borgward. Uh, he had 12 brothers and sisters, Scott, 12. 12? Yeah. Well, you got to do something to stand out. <laughs> he under- <laughs> you sure do. He undertook uh, some engineering studies, and he got his diploma in engineering in 1913. He served in World War One, where he was wounded, and he became a partner in a company called Bremer Reifen Industry. Yeah, and that, by the and way, I'm sorry for my German. Folks. Well, that's that's all right. That's uh, it's understandable. There's a um, there's a story behind that. I guess that's kind of his beginning, right? That's this is a a company that was an automotive radiator company, and this is in Bremen, Germany. This mm-hmm. is around what I think it's 1919, 1921, yeah, it's 1919, 1919. 1919. Okay, I think it was around 1921, maybe a. a Couple years later, when he decided that he's going to branch out on his own and he's going to uh, going to build his own vehicle, he's going to uh, make this this uh, sort of like a, a utility motorcycle, I guess is what you call it. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, it was yeah, a three wheel yeah. vehicle, and we know why it was three wheel probably because of taxes at the uh-huh. time. Uh, so it got around that uh, the car taxes, and um, this first vehicle was kind of a. Um, what would you call it? A, a three-wheel courier motorcycle, I think is what they called it? Yeah, we're talking about the 1924 Blitzkarren, right? Yeah, the uh, Blitzkarren means lightning cart in, yeah. in English. Which is and, a cool uh, name. Yeah, it is a really cool name. I, I would have stuck with lightning cart, but I guess it's the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it's All the right, same so thing. So 1924, that's the very first vehicle that carried uh, – it didn't it didn't necessarily carry the Borgward name. It was built by Borgward. Right, yeah. Uh, so this was you, – you can find pictures of this. It had two horsepower. Uh, 1.45 kilowatts, uh, but it was an enormous success because it filled a specific market niche, which was uh, there. There were a lot of people who were maybe I don't want to say small time, but local traders, mm-hmm. merchants, right? Sure, green grocers, etc. Yeah, and they would have delivery needs for their town, their village, their municipality. This was perfect because. This little three-wheeled van had room for a driver, but it was mainly built to haul stuff. Oh, wait a second, though. You said van. That's oh, a sec- that's a that's second. That's the second view. one. You're but right. You, but you know what? You're right in that the first one was the same thing with the. You know, it had more of a platform, I guess. The second right. one was more of a van type vehicle. It just had a body surrounding really the same vehicle. It looked like the same vehicle, the yeah. shape, anyways. And, uh, and that was called the Goliath, Goliath Pioneer. Yes. And that was produced from about 1931 to 1934, but that is based on the success of the Blitzkarren, which was the mm-hmm. one that, again, those grocers and those uh, those tradesmen, the people that needed to carry boxes and nails or wood or whatever. Chisels and screwdrivers. Yeah, or fresh vegetables <laughs> or you yeah. know, whatever it was, whatever you were selling in the market, uh, this thing had room to carry it. It was It's a, it's a really strange vehicle. It has kind of a deck. It almost has a, a boat-like look to it. Yeah. It? I, I must confess... I did get a chuckle when I read when I read Goliath Pioneer, and I was looking at the specs before I looked at a picture of it, and I thought, <laughs> "Oh, 
oh, okay, well, well, Ben, be cool. It was a different time. And I pulled up the picture, and I was chuckling. I was like, I wonder if this is... What, going to be a giant vehicle? Yeah, Goliath. Well, huh? it's called Goliath Pioneer. Sure, it sounds very impressive, right? But you look at it, this three-wheeled, I guess, cycle car type thing, yeah. and it's it's got an air-cooled one-cylinder engine, which is a little bit less than 0.2 of a uh, of a liter, um, 198 cc's. Yeah, about six and a half horsepower, maybe a little bit more, 6.7 horsepower. Um, so it's a, it's a diminutive vehicle, but it fit a purpose, and that purpose was mail delivery. A lot of uh, a lot of the uh, the German Postal Service would use yep. these vehicles uh, to deliver mail, you know, to whatever distant location they had to out in the country, or you know, even within the city. It was just a perfect vehicle for mail delivery at the time, and that's what they used it for. Top um, speed thirty four miles per hour. <laughs> thirty four. Thirty four. But miles. if you're stopping for every mailbox, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's like a it's. That version of a city car, I guess, maybe, uh, you know, in the 1930s, mm-hmm. early 1930s. All right, so you know, we're, we're kind of buzzing through the uh, the early 30s here, but um, there were some four-wheel cars that we need to talk about. Absolutely, All right, yeah. So, um, but let's stay just for a moment. I know he said we need to move on, but let's yeah, yeah. stay for a moment in the 1930s or maybe even one year prior, because in 1929, something happened that we do need to mention. Oh, right, yes, this is when Borgward, along with uh, his business partner, Wilhelm Tecklenborg. Which uh, is such a cool last name. <laughs> Tecklenborg, yeah, that's a cool name. Sounds like he has powers. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Look at the photo. <laughs> um, but he, it, those two acquired a company by the name of Bremer Hanseloid Work. And uh, together they developed the, well, they, they I guess, developed small trucks. And in 19, I think it was 1931, right, when they came up with the uh, the Goliath Pioneer that we just talked about. Right. And then they also renamed the company. I don't know exactly when the rename happened. It was probably right around this time, early 1930s, mid-1930s, uh, when they renamed the company. And this is a long one, Ben. I'm going to try to get through this in one, in one shot here. I believe in you, man. Okay. This name is the, they renamed the company Hansa Lloyd und Goliath Work Borgward and Tecklenborg OHG. Oh, hey, Dylan, can we put in uh, an applause, an ovation noise? That was great. Well, what they don't know is it took me seven or eight tries to get through Well, that. that's just the magic of editing, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so anyways, this uh, this three-wheeler that they had you know, under that new name, that new incredibly long name, this tiny little vehicle, was very popular. Yes, yes. And uh, five years later, they said, you know... Let's introduce some four-wheeled cars. What I, what I love about this point, Scott, is that this evolution occurred in a very smart way. First two vehicles that Borgward makes are very, very specific, mm-hmm. very niche. Yeah. Um, they're inexpensive to create, and mm-hmm. they're inexpensive to purchase, and probably inexpensive to maintain. Yeah. But now it's an expansion point. Now the game is changing, and... We'll tell you how after a word from our sponsor. Probiotics aren't a trend anymore. They're a mainstay in the health and wellness aisle of your favorite store. And Nature's Way Women's Probiotic Pearls are the easiest way to introduce a probiotic into your routine. I mean, they're just what they sound like. Adorable little pearls that couldn't be easier to take. But they still pack that probiotic punch. 
Each tiny pearl has one billion active cultures and protect against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort. And they actually support both digestive and vaginal health. So that's a win-win. And according to my little fact sheet here, they're designed with a triple layer coating that protects each pearl from stomach acid. So they can make it all the way to your small intestine where they're needed most. You probably didn't think we'd be talking about the small intestine today, did you? Well, digestive health is kind of important. If you know, you know. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back. Yep, and we are in. Uh, we're still in the 1930s, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm checking out when they uh, when they made these first four wheel vehicles mm-hmm. uh, under the Hansa brand, or Hansa. Um, and this is the production period for this vehicle, the, the Hansa 400 500, was between 1933 and 1935. So again, this is right around the time when the Goliath was still um, still a popular vehicle, still being produced. Uh, but this is an air cooled two cylinder rear engine, oh rear engine vehicle, either 400 cc, obviously you know for the the Hansa 400, and the 500 cc yeah. for the the Hansa 500. Um, horsepower was somewhere between 12 and 14, depending on which model you had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, this is their foray into Four-wheel vehicles, a, a more, I guess, proper-looking car, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and Scott, you made a you made a great point when you alluded to the taxation situation and how it would determine what uh, the number of wheels a vehicle had. Mm-hmm. Could you could we talk just a little bit about that so people know where it's coming from? Yeah, sure. If you have three wheels versus four wheels, it's considered a motorcycle. And uh, and the taxes that go along with motorcycles, even though you can carry multiple passengers, just like you can on a motorcycle, um, you know, if you have a, a cycle car, maybe, that's what I'm trying to get at, is it something that, you know, has multiple seats, even side by side, you're taxed as a motorcycle versus being taxed as a car, which was a much higher tax at the time. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the manufacturers would get around that by creating these three-wheel cycle cars. And, and we have a full episode on three-wheel cycle cars, 
three we wheel, do. three wheelers uh, from a long time ago. It's, it might even be a high speed stuff show. Um, but it, there's so many. <laughs> I just forget about those sometimes. Yeah, well, there's a long, long time ago. Yeah, years and years ago. But um, it, it, we'll we'll tell you all about how that kind of came about and the differences in the taxes and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a popular choice among manufacturers around this time. You know, post World War One, pre World War Two to build these three-wheel cycle cars because, you know, it was just a way to skirt the taxes that the government was going to charge. And they did it very effectively. I mean, they had some interesting designs. People really liked them. They were popular. Sure, especially if we're talking about uh, the urbanization of Europe at the time. Europe was already a much more urbanized um, area of the world in comparison to, say, the United States, which led vast swaths. Today has vast swaths of wilderness where there's just... Nothing there but yeah. a couple of, you know, irritated and lazy bears. I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, Hard di- to imagine that where we live. Right. We have diverse ecology and amazing wildlife. But we do have bears here, oddly enough. We do have bears. Occasionally, there'll be a tie-up on a road, you know, a main yeah. highway, because there's a bear in a tree, and everybody has to slow down to look at it. It's, well, a weird, yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Nobody's going to mess with the bear. Well, I guess. I mean, it's just strange that, you know, in a, in a city of, what, 7 million people, there's still bears. Well, yeah, but we have a lot of forest. Uh, look, this is a different show. Oh, yeah, okay. we're, we're way off track. <laughs> it's I but would I would love to do here, a show about that, but here's an important point. Yeah, they were very successful. Yes, not only were they very successful in this um, in in this iteration, but they were riding the wave of change. So Germany at this time was working on. Uh, working on creating an increasingly powerful and sophisticated industrial base, right? Mm-hmm. But we got to remember this is after World War One, so this is a very difficult thing in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's even more impressive in that case that Borgward was able to uh, was able to play the game, the political aspects of the game so well because we said that they had the Hans of 400 and 500, and we talked about the taxes for three-wheel vehicles being considered motorcycles versus four-wheeled vehicles. Well, even once you get into four-wheeled vehicles, there were different tax uh, systems or yeah. structures. So the Hansa 400 and 500, they were smaller vehicles because tax rules were favorable for them. But in 1933, those tax rules were abolished. And this triggered Borgward's decision to make a, a new series of Hansas. Yeah. They, I mean, they have the 1100 series. Uh, they went on to make, what, the 1700 series, mm-hmm. I think, as well. Which is uh, a six-cylinder. Yeah. And the convertible versions of those. I mean, it's just that there's a lot of variety. There's a, the Hansa 2000 that comes out as well, the Hansa 3500. There's there's multiple Hansa models, and I've printed out several of them here. I've got Ben. I showed Ben earlier. I printed out <laughs> just the models, and it's thir- just the the um, the Borgward models that you know encompass Goliath and Hansa and Borgward and all yeah. that stuff. Um, Thirteen pages of material, and there's no way we're going to go through every model that they made by any means. But just know that in you know the early part, or the late part of the 1930s and early 1940s, this was such a popular line of vehicles so so uh so many people wanted these that there was a six month waiting list and you guys know i'm a sucker for some of these older classic cars the the very streamlined uh roaring 20s angry 30s look uh borgward was nailing this at the, at the same time they also began to uh phase out the hansa name 
and fa- and just focus more and more on Borgward. So the name they made the seventeen hundred, the two thousand, like Scott said, um, they began to call them Hansa Borgwards and then Borgward Hansa, and finally they said, ah, <laughs> why are we standing on ceremony? Well, the, the badging thing is a little bit tough to, to grasp, really, unless yeah. you see the history laid out in front of you. So so that's a tough thing. But you got to remember that they're also competing with other you know, leading German automakers of the day, which included Opel and Ford and Adler. Uh, there's also um, Wanderer. Um, there were others. I, I, they've got another list of, of competitors here somewhere, but, oh, BMW is one that they were competing with. Oh, yeah, with, of course. Um, in the early days. Yeah. Um, and that's an important thing to note, too, because we'll get to that in a minute. That, that is part of one of the twists. Oh, gave a little clue what's coming up. <laughs> All right, so here's the – oh, and here's the other thing. Um, okay, so – they were also really passionate about their engineering, about their design, about their, um, you know, as we said in the early part of this podcast, we said that uh, they they were um, on the leading edge of technology. They were really trying to bring in some new technology like the air suspension, and they were also working on um, uh, just making the cars stylish and, and cutting edge and, and the cars that, that people wanted to buy. People wanted to be seen in a Borgward or a Hansa or whatever it was badged at the time. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, maybe that passion for engineering is what also led to the company's downfall, according to uh, according to this Car and Driver article, because um, as they point out, each of these brands, so you're talking about the Lloyd, the Hansa, Lloyd Hansa, um, Goliath, and Borgward, they each had their own engineering and purchasing departments. So there's very little commonality between cars. A lot, uh, this is very unlike what we see today in that, you know, a lot of parts are shared among, you know, different brands that are owned by the same parent company. Um, I guess maybe a case in point would be like, you know, where you, you have a, a Volkswagen and you see, a, um, I think, I don't know if I have this backwards maybe, but on the seatbelts there might be a tag that has the Audi logo. Oh, right, right, uh, right. Because it's a shared part between mm-hmm. that brand and, you know, this brand. So um, there was very little commonality between these cars. And sometimes the company find it, would find itself short on cash because it was having to develop all these different models independently of one another. So getting back into it, you know, in the, in the late 1930s, I guess, around 1938, um, Borgward opened a brand new modern factory in Bremen, Germany, of course. And right. um, by 1939, uh, they were forced to shift their production into trucks and military vehicles for the war effort for Germany. And now we're entering into something that is controversial doesn't cover it uh we're entering into a um just a fact a historical fact uh, that borgward's company was mandated by the national socialist government of the time more properly known as the nazis to build hardware and machines or vehicles specifically for their war effort this is in some ways similar to what was happening with U.S. manufacturers, uh, but the difference is that a lot of these U.S. manufacturers willingly turned uh, their efforts toward building weapons of war for the Allies. Yeah, where it's likely that Borgward, Borgward was forced to do this. He was he was told that, you know, you need to do this. Um, you have to make these trucks and these military vehicles for us. So the Bremen factory um, w- was put into use for, again, making, you know, machines of war. Mm-hmm. And, in, and, of course, then it became a target. So in 1944, the Bremen factory was destroyed by Allied bombs. And, of course, we all know what happened during the war. And in 1945, when the war ended, um, Karl Borgward was arrested and served three years in prison for aiding the Nazis. And I feel like it would be dishonest if we glossed over the fact 
that one of one of the accusations, one of the things he was convicted of and it was proven was that prisoners of war were being used as labor in these factories. Yeah. Yeah. So this is very, very dirty pool. Yeah. Now, uh, without court transcripts and all that, we don't know if he was willing you know, a willing participant in this, or if this was forced upon him, or what. So, um, again, it's it's just a part of the history that we do have to mention here that uh, that the uh, that the founder of this company did serve three years in prison for again aiding the Nazis. We're again building these machines of war. Um, I do, but he, but he bounced back from this. Yeah, and I do. That's a point I, w- I want to ask about Scott because it's something I want to ask the listeners too. So, yes, arrested. Convicted, 1945, but served only three years. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about post-World War II prison sentences where, you know, a lot of people were sentenced to death or life in prison. Yeah. Or um, I think some there, there are high-level military officials who committed suicide before they could go to trial. Uh, three years just seems... Seems light. Well, you know? three years may indicate that, uh, that he had... Relatively little involvement, I guess, in in what had happened, or or little um, little agency, maybe. Yeah, I guess maybe that's the best way to say it is that uh, you know maybe it was it was again forced upon him, you know, that it wasn't his doing. Uh, he wasn't running a camp by any means, you know, his, on his own accord. It was it right. wasn't him. Uh, he was being made to do so. But again, the three year sentence I think does reflect probably um, his uh, his guilt in this situation. And before we get to his bounce back, I will just give a brief example of the kind of things they were building. Sure. Okay. So during the war, uh, they used some remotely operated demolition tanks. One was called the Borgward 4, and it was the largest of the three remotely operated tanks that the uh, – that the Nazis were using. It was the only one capable of releasing its explosives before detonating, and the two smaller vehicles – were one and dones. They were designed to like be destroyed when their explosive charge no, detonated. No so you could kidding. just like roll it in, you know. Wow. Oh, nobody could see in the audience, but I'm like, fa- I'm, I'm, I mean, holding a remote control. Wow. Um, so initially they developed that thing to carry ammunition, but it wasn't suitable. Uh, it was too vulnerable to be a minesweeper. So this is, this, what, what's interesting about this is that the thing that seems to happen in times of, very high pressure, very time sensitive uh, demands on technological innovation. The thing that seems to happen is people will come up with a thing and they'll be like, okay, here's my better widget. And they'll say, okay, let's try to make it do this. They'll go, okay, well, this widget doesn't work for, um, this widget won't work on the shore because water ruins it. And they're like, okay, okay, well, let's put it in the desert or let's make it, you know, we just try to find a use for these innovations. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened there. Um, the The problem is that, of course, you don't know how something will perform until it's in the field, whether you're crash testing a Toyota Camry or a heavy tank. Yeah, that's true. So that's the kind of stuff he built. But fast forward three years, he is out and 
it's a new Germany. Yeah. So after the war, uh, these German, you know, of course, the German raw materials were rationed um, as uh, like on a per manufacturer basis, I guess. So if you need raw materials in order to create your product, whatever that is, uh, it's going to be rationed. And he needed steel, of course, you know, cast iron, steel and all that mm-hmm. uh, rubber, whatever it would happen to be, even wiring and everything. Uh, but as a result, Carl uh, Borgward split his company into three different divisions and he built three different automobiles, the uh, Goliath. The Lloyd and then the Borgward brand, and it was pretty. That's a pretty smart move because then, three divisions, you get three times the materials distributed uh-huh. to your same to that same company, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty smart. I'm, this is the last time I'll explain what I'm, what I'm doing visually. I'm tapping my head. It just seems like a smart thing. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was a smart move on his part. So, you know, he's, he's thinking about this stuff all the way through. And, you know, around this time is when he launched the uh, something called the Hansa 1500 in mm-hmm. 1949. And that was, uh, oh, here's a first uh, mention. There's a lot of firsts in here as well. Uh, this is Germany's first all-new post, post-war car and first with a unibody construction. And? Through fenders, mm-hmm. through fenders. So uh, no, no longer the, uh, the. I guess it's a pontoon body without the through fenders, right? Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that the right way to say that? I think it is. And then not long after that, uh, it was followed by something called well, the, the Hansa 1800. And in 1952, there was a Hansa 2400 model, which introduced Germany's another first Germany's first automatic transmission um, because they were trying to win over the uh, the luxury market. Yeah, make a car for the swells. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. It's, an, it's a pretty good-looking car. I'm looking at a 2400 right now in, the, uh, in this uh, article by Hemmings that we're also uh, following along with. Yeah. And uh, it's a good-looking vehicle. This is the, uh, the fastback design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2.4 liter, uh, 82 bhp, inline 6, top speed. Check this out, 93 miles per hour. Not bad. Not bad. Not, not bad. bad. And it was right around this time, ballpark around this time, nineteen around 1952, 1954, somewhere in there, um, they were building car, uh, they built a car, I should say, uh, that entered into Le Mans. And they were also at the Nürburgring and La Carrera Panamericana. That's it. Uh, the They were competing against Porsches, man. Yeah. Well, of course, they were competing against all the other sport racers of the day, so... And it did pretty well. I mean, they broke the 1,000-mile record at the Autodrome. I'll try this out here, Ben. It's a French word. All right. Autodrome de Montlhery. I think I'm close. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's well, the circuit, right? It's the circuit near Paris. Yeah, and they had an average speed of 107.5 miles per hour. Uh, most of their successes for Bourguard, uh, as far as racing goes, were in Formula 2 um, and Carrera. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the mid-1950s. And uh, we're about, what, 1954, somewhere around there? Yeah, yeah. This is a high point in Borgward's commercial success, and this comes with the introduction of a new Isabella line. And this is a car that a lot of people say is like like the maybe the most beautiful car of its era. It's it's a striking car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no two ways about it. So the Isabella is manufactured from 54 to 62, right? It was supposed to have been marketed... Oddly enough, as the Borgward Hansa 1500, but they used the Isabella name on test vehicles, and the staff and the you know the press loved it. Now, here's what I find really interesting about this: is that in that time frame, around 1954, you know, mid 1950s, 
about 35% of factory production was destined for the United States. And that's why I, I just am puzzled. I'm so puzzled as to why this hasn't, you know, stood out more to me at museums or right. you know, see them at car shows or whatever. Cause you know, there have to be a lot of them here in the United States. Somewhere. Yeah, there have to be a lot somewhere. I know that they're elsewhere in the world. Of course, there are yeah. lots of them because, uh, by 1957, they had, they had surpassed their 500,000th car built yeah. for, for a Borgward. Well, that, okay. So here's the thing. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you about this, so I'm, I'm glad we're at this point. Um, I wonder how much of that is tied to, at least in the U.S., is tied to anti-German prejudice at the close of the war. Well, I don't, no, this is, um, well, I don't know. I mean, you think so? Well, I mean, 35%, be, uh, 35% of that factory production is going, is coming here. Right, right. But, but I'm saying we don't see more of it because maybe those cars weren't as well preserved. Possibility. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I feel like I am walking down the street, going around the corner, and really reaching for that one. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? There's a chance. There sure is a chance. Uh, but again, by 1957, they had built 500,000 cars, and yeah. with, with so many coming to the United States out of, you know, their production, and I guess maybe that was just, you know, something that had happened later, uh, of course, post-World War II. Um, but uh, anyways, I'm just kind of confused by the, uh, the low number of vehicles we see here. The advertising price, the, the launch price was higher than that of their competitors, sedans from Opel or Ford, but it was still less than what Mercedes-Benz wanted for their uh, 180 model. Yeah, and at the time, this also makes them Germany's second largest auto manufacturer right behind Volkswagen. So they're definitely players in this field. I mean, they've got a lot going for them. They get decent mileage. I mean, they get between 28 to 34 miles per gallon. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got all these modern features. You know, they have four-wheel independent suspension, um, four-speed automatic transmissions, Great um, mileage too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't know. The price is right. It just seems like, um, I, I don't know. More again of this this type, this uh, this this vehicle. Now, production went on until what 1961, I think, of the Isabellas. Um, but production by the by the end of that production, I should say, more than 200,000 Isabellas were eventually produced. So it, it was a big, big. Uh, a seller for them, a real popular model. And in fact, this was so big at the time that yeah. Chrysler decided that they wanted to buy that brand at some point, and they were going to, uh, they were going to try to buy 51% of the company. Right, it was very Shark Tank. Well, yeah, I guess so, yeah, exactly, Shark Tank, yeah, right. So, Chrysler, again, they wanted to buy, they, they wanted to buy 51%, and this bid would have equaled somewhere around 200 million Deutschmarks, which I think is an equivalent to about 50 million U.S. dollars at the and, time. And Carl Borgward said, no way. Yeah, turned it down. Now, remember, this oh, is Oh, excuse the, me. He said nine. Yeah, probably did say nine, yeah. Yeah, that's and, the uh, one German word I know. <laughs> nice work. Thanks, and man. Then, uh, so, so this is, again, like right around the late 1950s. I think it was by 1959. So remember that number, you know, that he could have... Chosen to sell out here at this point for $50 million, at least 51% of his company. This is very important. This is important. For later. So, so yeah, it, it really does. And it comes up very soon, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, but 1959 was also a, a big year for Borgward. So initially, he thought he had done the right thing because here's the scoop on 1959. They have a, uh, a new six-cylinder Borgward P100 model, which was introduced at the Frankfurt Motor Show that year. And that was then considered the company's most prestigious model and of course this is the first german production car with air suspension that we right. talked about before so it's got you know this cutting edge technology um and this helped mark the best year in borgward's history 1959 so he's at the top of the game right now this and guy it, it looks great I, yeah. d- I just have to say if you are a fan of classic cars these cars look great and the uh the p100 has this 
this design that to me recalls almost like classic Chevys, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a good look. I mean, it really is. It's a nice, nice look. It's got it's got little fins on the back and everything. Yeah, it's got that American styling. Uh, a bit it. of the, the roof line almost reminds me a bit of, like, the Mercedes of the day, mm-hmm, um, you mm-hmm. know, the big sedans. It's just a really impressive-looking vehicle, very sharp, very clean-looking. Um, take a look at, you know, the, the models that you'll you'll find online, just a, a quick you know, Google search for the the word will get it. You the uh, the Isabella line. So they're, um, but they're having a big year. Yeah, their income totaled over six hundred thirty two million uh, Deutschmarks, which would make it approximately one hundred fifty eight million U S. One hundred fifty eight million coming into this company right now. Mm-hmm. This is the income that's yeah. coming into the company now. And remember, with the Chrysler bid that they had passed up again for fifty one percent of the company for fifty million dollars. So they were like, so, hey, hey, yeah. So here we are, the first half of nineteen sixty. Um, this is important. This is a really critical time here for the for this company. The first half of 1960, again, we said buyers had to wait months to take delivery of these new Isabellas. But in the second half of the year, this is where things kind of go bad. And a couple of things happen. Well, one major thing happens. An article, of all things, changes everything. And uh, you know what? We'll tell you about that right after a word from our sponsor. You know, everybody has their own wellness routine, their own approach to a healthy lifestyle. A lot of the most successful ones include herbs like ginger root, ashwagandha, and so many others. Nature's Way has been sourcing herbs like those for over 50 years. They understand that nature is the ultimate problem solver. So they're dedicated to providing plant-powered formulas to help people live healthier lives. Their herbs can support your health in so many ways. For instance, ginger root and slippery elm bark have both been used for centuries all over the world. Ginger root has traditionally been used to soothe occasional digestive upset and slippery elm bark to soothe the GI tract. St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support, which is something we can all use in our modern life. I mean, these herbs come from all over the world, but Nature's Way knows where the best ones grow. They test for potency in their state-of-the-art lab, and their scientists are experts in all things herbs. What's on the label is what's in your bottle, and what's in your bottle are the best herbs around. To learn more, visit naturesway.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
And we're back. Uh, Scott, I, I, that's a heck of a cliffhanger you left us with. I, I feel like I paid for the whole seat, but I only needed the edge. <laughs> that's right. Well, I do my best. You know, I try. I try. Um, there's not always, you know, that, that edge to get to right before we, uh, we have to make the leap for the commercial, but. But we're uh, here and there was a single article. Yeah. There was a single article in 1960 that changed everything for this company. And this is really strange. Um, a cover story in the magazine Der Spiegel. Uh, ridiculed Borgward's engineering-driven and impulsive style and highlighted the company's financial travails. Now, here's the uh, here's the thing. We, we talked about how they had um, all these different brands and they were constantly working on, um, you know, like engineering and purchasing for both, or for, rather for all those brands, all yeah. four of the brands. And, uh, again, little commonality among the cars. Sometimes the company finds itself short on cash. So, um, you know, they're, they're often shortfalls in one area, but, you know, the other area is making, you know, a handsome profit. Um, but it didn't always work out that way. And there were, there were, there were problems within the organization, I guess. And, and this, this article pointed out that, um, you know, there might be some, uh, some cash flow issues within the company that, uh, that needed some attention. And so I guess, I guess the, uh, the city state of bremen you know the uh, the the government i guess the, right. um, the 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 ruling social democrat party uh which by the way they hated karl borgward yeah they were um, waiting for an excuse yeah, yeah they were but they jumped on this opportunity to renege on a pledge that they had vouched for a credit that borgward needed to move forward with uh with the new model you know with the new plans with new whatever he was building at the time and um they think that it was probably this move was really as much about emotion as it was about facts because right. again they hated each other and you know this guy um had kind of an old school industrialist idea you know like he was going to make it on his own uh they didn't necessarily like that they wanted him to be a little bit more beholden to to them right um and that's really what's going on i know it gets a little political in nature here but that's that's exactly what was going on but they 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 didn't like each other and they seized this opportunity well, they had more than that to simply seize. Yes, you're, you're right. It was politically motivated. There was no love lost. Uh, this, the car company could have continued if they just granted the credit and probably could have paid back the creditors. But what they, what they also gave him was an ultimatum, which was, okay, you can either shut down business now or we, the Senate of Bremen, the political party that you hate, we will control your company. Yeah. Give us your toys or break them. Yeah. Now, this is a little bit, this is a little bit where we get the, the Preston Tucker angle, right? Where they say, uh, you know, that the, it's the big, well, it's the government agency shutting down the little guy, right? Um, and the thing is, like, after, you know, article after article that I read about this is that only a, just a small loan, a relatively small loan, would have kept this company afloat. But, you know, as you said, Ben, he had two choices. He had the choice of either shut it down or hand the company over to the state to operate. So, but, but you gotta wait, wait, before mm, you jump into that. I yeah, know I'm, I'm yeah, pulling yeah, you back. Yeah, yeah. But he's got more than just, you know, like his pride to think about. He's also got 23,000 employees at this factory that are working every day. <sighs> That's a really good point, Scott. And 23,000. I'm, I'm glad you made that. That's a really good point. So ultimately, he chooses to give up his assets to Bremen uh, based on his uh, air quotes debt or his debt burden or whatever, which is – Well, it's highly disputed. We'll get to it. Yeah. We'll get to it. Um, but so he he makes the choice for the good of his employees because the the weird blood feud these folks have with him as an old school industrialist 
if he if he gives up his uh, if he rolls over, gives up his assets, then those twenty thousand plus employees will still have a job. Yeah, well, here's the most outrageous part of this whole thing. Oh, uh, I know it. Oh man. So he turns over the company to to Bremen, right? And the Senate decides who they're going to put in charge of this company. They put in they, here's the guy they put in charge. His name is Johann Semler. And Johann Semler, if you, if you, I'm not sure if anybody is a BMW historian here, but he was a manager who simultaneously headed BMW's supervisory board and Borgward at the same time. These two are bitter rivals. They're, I wouldn't, well, I don't know about bitter, but they're rivals. They're direct competitors. They put the, the fox in charge of the hen house. And it turns out maybe bitter is the right word because, um, Semler, uh, d- just doesn't really care if Borgward continues to operate or not. In fact, he would rather see them gone because it, it, you know, it further promotes the BMW brand. He did the most apathetic, uh, it's called half-baked often. They did the most apathetic job of trying to help, and we know it was super apathetic and likely insincere or disingenuous because uh, less than a year later, he stopped and the company had to close down. But here's the thing. Here's where it gets crazy. All the creditors were paid off like mm-hmm. that, man. Yeah, instantly. And the thing is, I think there was even money left over. At the end, uh, you know, once the creditors were paid over, there was still money left, uh, money in the money in the account. Yeah, uh, I don't know if for a better way to say that. They were that. still in the black. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is okay. In my notes and on every you know source material that I've got here, I have the word "what" in huge letters next to this with uh, you know, what's that uh, punctuation mark? The interrobang? Yeah, yeah, Is that yeah, it yeah, with a yeah. question mark? And, uh, a, um, a, um, it's a exclamation, a, exclamation and question mark together. Yeah, I've got those all over the place in this. Like, what are they doing? They, they gave. It, it's like putting putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. the saying? Yeah, I, I that that is the saying. Oh my god, I got one right. That's amazing. Well, I just said it earlier. I think that's why you got it right. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so we're gonna have we're gonna start having a Bremen Borgward situation here. It, in the podcast studio, it's, it's crazy. They put the guy in charge of BMW, in charge of this of his competitor, because it it really feels like a hit. It feels like the stuff they were saying about so called debt was uh, baloney, malarkey, a bunch of uh, a bosh. Do people say that? I don't know. I think I might have just accidentally made that one well, up. It works. Uh, it's not our best. We know what you mean. Okay, thank you. Anyway, so. So it turns out that this looks even more politically motivated rather than actual dealing, but it is a pyrrhic victory for the city of Bremen. Well, okay, yeah, the thing, okay, (laughs) Bremen is suffering at this point, right? Because they've lost 20,000 jobs and millions of dollars in tax revenue. So it's, it's bigger than that too, because on this, on this bigger scale, I guess, the downfall of this company becomes what they call an ominous crack in German post-war, uh, in Germany's post-war economic miracle because right. they did come back. They came back strong after World War II. Uh, but the thing is, this, uh, this is starting to, uh, Show maybe some of the internal conflicts that are going on within Germany as well. So um, it's a critical point in Germany's history when this company takes a dive. There's something that I definitely think we we should add here, which is there was an engineering passion that played at least part of the role in the downfall of Borgward, as much as I think the people in Bremen, the government of Bremen, overreached. Um, I do think it, it also didn't help that for every brand 
Bo- uh, that Borgward had. They had their own engineering and purchasing departments. They were very unique marks, uh, you know, like in terms of they didn't have the modular design or yeah. interchangeable parts like you had mentioned before. Sure, yeah. And, you know, the thing is that it's it's also pointed out that, um, well, even <laughs> this is this is the crazy part. Well, it, there's so many crazy parts. I can't keep saying that. But um, <laughs> I'm going to skip just ahead just a little bit because in 1965, this very same magazine that did the cover story um, on Borgward yeah, in 1960, yeah, Der Spiegel, they reported that Borgward could have easily overcome its 1961 problems with a little financial help from the local banks or the state. Now, what again, this is another place where I have the, the what um, in tarot bang all over the place because <laughs> seriously, I mean, after after they, they they kind of ridiculed the company and, and pointed out the flaws to the state and then they say now, like, well, here's how you w- we would have solved it or it could have been easily solved. Um, it, seems, it seems like they're kind of playing both sides of this here. But, but okay... I'm grabbing my head and shaking it. I can't. I can't believe what's going on with this company. It's really. It's pretty shocking to see how this all played out in the in the early part of the 1960s. But the company sort of went on a little bit after this, and and in a different way. Um, in the late 1970s, I think it was AMC almost benefited from the fall of Borgward. Now that's a strange company to kind of throw into the mix here, AMC. Yeah. Um, but so the American Motors Corporation. But the AMC Hornet from, uh, which was built, I think, from 1970 to about 1977, um, again, almost benefited from, uh, this because they were going to use the underpinnings of the P100, um, for the, uh, for, for their own vehicle, for the, um, for the Hornet. But they, uh, for whatever reason, th- that plan never came to fruition. They just didn't do it. Um, so it was going to be skinned as an AMC Hornet, but it would have had the, the, you know, the, uh, the workings, I guess, of the Borgward right. P100. Strange, a weird thing, because you know the, the the assets were were sold and shipped to Mexico, right? And I guess that's where these were being built, or you know there was a um, some type of connection there that was made. I, I, there's probably more to that story too that uh, that would anger me as well. But but what a weird twist! What a weird way to run into a legitimate conspiracy theory. Uh, yeah. Some of it doesn't add up, man. Well, it doesn't. I mean, the state could have saved him, I guess. And you can look at this a couple of ways. Like, well, maybe they just didn't want to bail him out. But it seems like they were in the can for – is that the right phrase? In the can for BMW or in the uh, in, in the, the corner of BMW, maybe. Oh, yeah, 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 that's yeah. That's probably yeah. a better way to in say it. In the pocket. I'm terrible. In the pocket. That's it. Is that the one? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so it seems like they uh, they were they were favoring BMW in this case because right. <laughs> look who they, they had run this thing similar. Yeah. Um, and they knew what was going to happen with that. But, I mean, did they know that it was going to fold up less than a year later? I don't know about that, maybe. And it's kind of, you know, I, I, my bias here is clear. But to be fair, it's only my opinion that Semler was uh, was crooked. But uh, cro- crooked is a paperclip. But the um, that doesn't make sense either. i got to stop trying to make up idioms, man. It's all right. We, see, we get what you mean, though. I guess. Yeah, All I understood right. it. Crooked is a paperclip. Crooked is a is a bent coat hanger. <laughs> uh, so, I, that's that's just my opinion. But it is difficult to ascribe motive to people um, without without facts. Well, and then also we have to mention this too. Um, just two years after this bankruptcy, so here's a guy that you know was producing. Uh, what, what would you say? Like 
more than half a million cars. I don't remember what the final production number right, was right, eventually, right. but by 1957, he had half a million cars. Uh, second largest manufacturer in Germany. Uh, Karl Borgward died in 1963, just two years after this bankruptcy. So he probably died, um, you know, thinking that his company had failed. He knew what was going on, though. I mean, he knew how dirty this game was that he was playing. Um, so he knew the real story. But this, the Borgward factory in Bremen, by the way, is right now being used by Mercedes-Benz. Um, and then, you know, we can skip way, way ahead if we want, unless you still have some more historic material to cover, Ben. No, Scott, I say forward into the future, because while this might seem like it is the bittersweet end of another Scott and Ben rise and fall of a car company origin story, this one has an epilogue. Yeah, my happy ending. Yeah. Well, so far. Well, yeah, sort of. Uh, all right, so and we'll see how this pans out, I guess. But um, after, what was it, 57 years, mm-hmm. 57 years from, from 1961 until 2008, um, Borgward was just gone. Uh, they still own the name. They still had the, you know, the company. Um, they still uh, had I the guess, paper guess, version. The, yeah, the rights to it, I guess, maybe. The family did. Yeah. And the founder's grandson, his name is Christian Borgward, he teamed up with a former Saab and Daimler PR executive. The guy's name is... Carl Heinz Nuss, and last year, that last year, okay, that would be in, uh, what, 2014, I think it would have mm-hmm. been, uh, when this article was written, um, they sold the rights to a brand um, by the name of Photon Motor in China. And I hope I'm saying that right, Photon. It's F-O-T-O-N. It's maybe Photon or something. Mm-hmm. But Photon, let's say. And um, uh, at the Geneva Auto Show that year, in 2015, they announced or they gave a, a glimpse into the future of uh, the plans that they had uh, decided they were going to bring out a premium model Borgward badged vehicle by the end of 2015. Yes, the Borgward BX7. It's a compact luxury crossover SUV. You know, everybody's got to make a crossover now. Uh, it's got two trim levels, right? And uh, both are powered by a turbocharged 2-liter inline-four engine uh, that has horsepower around 225. And they also have a 401-horsepower plug-in hybrid version that they're planning to add later. And they worked on this for seven years, because we said in 2008 is when you know the, the founder's grandson, again, Christian Borgward, uh, you know, teamed up with this guy and said, well, we'd like to do something, but you know we don't want to jump right into it immediately. Let's let's right. lay this out. It sounds like they had they spent their time uh, laying out the plans, you know, doing whatever they had to do uh, for that seven years, and then when they promised that vehicle, they actually delivered because in uh, July, I believe it was of last year, this vehicle went on sale in China, and it is destined. Uh, to come to oh, well, uh, other emerging markets, I guess, in, in the late part of 2016, or it was, right. and in Europe, uh, the rest of Europe, by uh, this year, 2017. Not, so we'll see. Yeah, no word yet on the U.S., though. No. No, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know if that will ever happen, but um, it may. Maybe. Um, but it's interesting that they have, uh, have developed new product, again, with a 57-year break in the action, and then come out, you know, uh, seven years prior to the launch of the first vehicle, and said, "Yeah, we're going to do this, or we're going to we're thinking about bringing back, we're going to get the band back together." That's what they said, really. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess it's a real comeback story, you know? Yeah. And it's happy, right? Because I mean, they're producing vehicles. Mm-hmm. The founder's grandson, and they've got plans to expand. They've got plans to make multiple, you know, levels, multiple versions, right? Yeah. Uh, they're going into the market, which is one of the fastest growing right now, crossover SUVs. You know, a lot of people are, are buying those. So mm-hmm. 
I don't know about you, Scott, but I absolutely wish them the best of luck. I do too. I hope they're a success because, um, you know, they're building on this great company history. And, and honestly, if you haven't seen the Isabella line, uh, take a look at, you know, what's out there, the, the convertible versions, all the different models. Um, really, this is a classy looking car. It really is. I would, I know we didn't have time to go through all the models, but I'm curious if you could recommend one to look at. <laughs> or like one that would be your favorite? Oh, you got me scrambling for my notes now. But uh, <laughs> I, what's curious. yours? What's your favorite? You know, looking through them, I, I gotta say I'm a big fan of the Hansa 2000 mm, okay. uh, 3839. It just it looks so classy. Uh, maybe the 3500. Uh, uh, maybe actually no, maybe the 1700 or the 2000. Okay. Fair enough. I'm looking at those right now, and I would go with the Isabella Coupe, and uh, that's I'm talking about the one that was produced between 1957 and 1961. Yeah, so it's yeah. a hard top, uh, but it just has just it's, there's something about it that's just right for the late 1950s, early 1960s. So you just has that look. So wait, 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 wait. You're not into the uh, Goliath Pioneer. <laughs> You know, I, I actually am into the Goliath Pioneer, and I feel like this is one of those cars that maybe I ran across one at the uh, at that micro museum. You know, the micro car and yeah, is it micro and bubble car museum. I think it uh-huh. was that was here in Georgia. Um, long gone now, but um, I just feel like maybe I've seen one of these somewhere. But I, I don't know. I can't exactly place where it was. I, I don't know. It's a strange thing. You know, when when you realize how many of these were produced, how many were shipped to the United States, and how few of them we see now. Yeah. It's a weird I, equation. But, but here's the thing. Maybe it's one of those, uh, was it Bader-Meinhof? Oh, yeah, Bader-Meinhof. Bader-Meinhof, that's, yeah. that's the term. Like maybe now that we're focused on you know the Hansa, Goliath, you know, Borgward, all those names, mm-hmm. maybe we're going to spot these in museums now when we, or car shows you know, when we go to them in, in the area. So uh, I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but just for a quick explanation, uh, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is when you hear uh, something and it appears that you hear it frequently for a period of time afterwards. So, for instance, let's say you had never heard the word, um, uh, I don't know, Scott, what's a weird word? Caterpillar. Caterpillar. You had never heard the word caterpillar, and you learned about what a caterpillar was. And then all of a sudden, you noticed that every single day, at least two or three times a day, you ran into a caterpillar. This also happens with uh, songs, right? Yeah. And people think, oh, I woke up with a song in my head, and all of a sudden it's playing on the radio. Whoa, Freaky Friday, Twilight Zone, yeah. X-Files. Precognition. Precognition, my psychic powers are back in play, time to get a scratch-off ticket. But what's actually happening is you're just primed to notice that more often. Yeah. Uh, this happens it, a lot to people that buy a new car of a certain make and model. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. once they buy that vehicle, which they had really never paid much attention to on the road, suddenly they see everybody else that's also driving the same make and model of car that they now have. Happens a lot. Or that they're searching for. You know, if they're interested in that vehicle to buy it, let's say you're going to look uh, for a, uh, the latest Corvette, you know, 2017 yeah. Corvette. Yep. And uh, then suddenly you see 2017 Corvettes all over town, which you hadn't noticed, you know, the, the week prior. It just happens that way. It just happens. The yeah. human brain is a fascinating you thing. Know, I don't by any means want to go into any detail on this, but uh, but we should also mention that in 19, uh, 1958, um, Borgward built a couple of helicopters, too. Helicopters. Helicopters. Yeah, strange. These they people, built two. Scott, these people are out here 
changing the face of the automotive <laughs> industry and building helicopters. Well, these were these were built for spraying and ag- agriculture, you know, like maybe crop duster type vehicles. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. But they're very small helicopters, and if you want to look into those, you know, check out Borgward Helicopters, and you'll find uh, a photo of at least one of the two that they built. But they were they never got past uh, the prototype stage because that's when the bankruptcy happened. I just feel like you know here like, these people are changing the face of industry, and here I am just. Trying not to spill coffee. Now, see, you know what this is an indicator of? This is an indicator of we're going to find out who's listening all the way to the end of the episodes because they will be the ones that hear about the helicopter. You know, if they tuned out right when we finished the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then I thought, you know, well, it's just Ben and Scott chatting afterwards, right? It's uh, it's meaningless. It's meaningless chatter. We are going a little long on this one, my friend. (laughs) I know. Okay. uh, (laughs) So there's a helicopter test. So write in if you got to the end of the episode and let Scott know your opinion of Borgward helicopters. Yeah, we didn't do the nicknames. Ah, that's that's next on the agenda. See, I I wrote a note. Uh, Two hours now on this episode? So I think we go with... Uh, Noel Borgward Brown. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Uh, what do you, what do you think? Goliath. I, well, okay, Dylan uh, Goliath. Yeah, why, not, why not Goliath? I like it. Yeah. Let's take it. And then write, uh, write in, let us know what you think about Borgward. We want to thank uh, Tomas C for, uh, writing in with the excellent suggestion. Uh, this was something that fascinated us. We hope you enjoyed it too because it's, uh, it's weird. For us to run into something that we have completely not heard, heard of, heard, never heard tell, as yeah. my uh, relatives would just, say. Just have never dug into this topic and never really, really focused on it. But it's a fascinating story again. And this, these turn up all the time. So mm-hmm. keep sending in those ideas. It's, uh, it's really, really, um, important to us to, to cover stuff like this that, you know, if, if we haven't heard about it, then there's a good chance that a lot of our listeners haven't heard about it. So, uh, if, if you know of something that's kind of interesting, unique, niche like this, send it in. We'll, we'll dig into it and see if there's a full episode there. And we've gone probably too long on this one, but, <laughs> uh, but that's because of our, exci- of our yeah, excitement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good story. Yeah, yeah. This, really uh, is. consider this a road trip episode. I should have said that at the beginning. Oh, well, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you are interested in hearing more, automotive origin stories then go to our website carstuffshow.com which we mentioned at the top where you can check out every single audio podcast we have ever done you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are carstuff hsw and if you would like to write to us directly but want to avoid that social media uh baloney malarkey trap trap bosh I feel like I made up Bosch. Anyway, you can write to us directly. We are car stuff at howstuffworks.com. And I want to hear about those helicopters. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.